Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny. I'm Jen and I've got Kristen here with me. Hi, Jen. Hi, everyone. How's it going? It is good. How are things with you? I feel like you've been so much less not stressed out, but I know you're <laughs> you have more free time on your hands. <laughs> well, listen, with my kids both in school full time, I'm so glad that I took on this second job <laughs> because I think that I would be going stir crazy trying to figure out like I like actually keep my house clean or like right. prepare home cooked meals. We ordered Shake Shack for dinner last night. So my nice. track record is still fully intact. Nice. Um, but I was stressed out yesterday because for those of you who don't follow us on social media, we've um, decided to put together a little series of slideshow type content explaining different paths to either different job opportunities or achieving different skills. And I had to build this out in Canva. And as Kristen, you said, it was like a taste of what my life would have mm-hmm. been like if I had stayed in an investment banking role. And it is yeah. not for me. Except it was like actually formatting, making little text things the right size. Here's the thing, actually. In banking, it's easier for a couple of reasons. So number one, in PowerPoint, a lot of these banks have automated macros or ways of making it easier. And mm-hmm. also just like, I mean, Canva, you can't align shit. Like it drives me bananas. There's so much stuff in the non-PowerPoint. Yes, non Oh, well. Not not using my shortcuts. I can't do like I mean I have with No, the you can't align stuff using shortcuts in a way that oh, I know how you I have just to use the mouse. I just need to learn how to do that. I am not an expert in Canva. I'm literally learning Neither it. I'm like, Jen, make I. this stuff for me. I know. I mean, when I was in the joint venture between investment banking and sales and trading, my Everest was this PowerPoint slide that I had to maintain. We were doing a tolling defeasance project. <laughs> and It was this box and arrow diagram of Mm. all these different moving pieces and parts that just kept growing. So it started Mm. out as like 15 boxes and arrows. And I was like, okay. And I made them all nice on the thing. By the time this presentation was done, we had like 120 boxes and arrows. They were like, fit this all on one slide and make it coherent. And I was like testing the boundaries of how small you could make font sizes. Mm -hmm. I was practically on the phone with Microsoft Office being like, can we do size two font and still make it legible to try to get everything on one page? And I mean, we're talking 
I must have spent 100 hours, 200 hours of my life on this one PowerPoint slide, just Mm -hmm. messing around with it in perpetuity. So I never was cut out to be an investment banker. I never will be cut out to be an investment banker. That's honestly water torture to me. Yeah. Um, I I hear you. I do find it fun. It's almost like an art form, but it's like a challenge. It's like, how can I convey a message using whatever graphics and words, but do it in a way that people are actually going to understand it? So there is, it's a little bit of a challenge and that's fun. It is a huge challenge, but it's one of those challenges that it's like, it's like when we interviewed Helen Gallant and she was mm-hmm. talking about the task of having to go get these football tickets yeah. and deliver it and how it became so mm-hmm. challenging. It's one of those things where it's like, this is simultaneously below my pay grade, yet yes. beyond <laughs> my capacity as a human to well, deal with. I mean, it's- I want to give you like huge kudos because I couldn't have done what you did, but like you got the template in place. So now it's like easy to run with. I mean, that was the thing. It was sort of just like the initial setup was the hard part. And then now yes. that it's set up, it's easy. It's easy to tweak. It's easy to modify. It's easy to, I mean, people pay lots of money to get their brand kit. And I mean, you just were like, here, let's do this. <laughs> well, that's what we've been doing. We've been doing everything on a shoestring budget. It's like, where the Wall Street skinny logo come from? And it was like Kristen's second accidental attempt at stumbling on something. I mean, which is fine. And it's very on brand for us that we're just kind of a hot mess rolling mm-hmm. everything out and well, we don't But mind. I think we will have another interview. We interviewed a, one of Jen's classmates, this really impressive guy who started his own firm and is now a venture capitalist. He was just talking about how like when you're trying to start your own business or founder, like you just have to learn all this like random stuff. You're like, well, I didn't realize I needed to figure out how to do, I don't know, open a bank account. Most people will probably like can do that. I can't. So Jen <laughs> well, did it today. <laughs> tomorrow at 10 a.m. Guess where I'll be. <laughs> but well, and, and we're gonna talk about that a little bit today. So mm-hmm. the the person that we're interviewing today is a former client of mine named Brian Weinstein. And when I covered him, he was at BlackRock running about three hundred billion dollars worth of assets. He was a portfolio manager overseeing something like 40 or 50 different investors who were all running money in the fixed income space. And he also built their inflation business. And Brian will talk about this. He actually took a detour in between his time at BlackRock and his current job. He is the head of fixed income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, which we call MSIM. But he actually started his own company called Blue Elephant in the midst of all that. And he was saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. He's like, I had to learn all of these new skills that aren't at all related to markets knowledge Mm -hmm. or anything like that. And that can be the scariest part of whatever you're doing, whether it's venture capital, private equity, investment management, all these things. There's more to it than just the, does the market go up or down? There's the uh, the operational side, which can be intensive. Right. Well, I was going to say, it's funny because especially if you're someone who tends to be like gravitating towards more of like an investment banking type of a path where it's very structured, you sort of learn what you're going to do and then you do it, you execute, you get to the next thing. It's all, I don't want to say formulaic, but it's like a little formulaic. You're a worker bee, but like you, you learn the tools and then you execute that. Whereas if you're starting your own thing, there's all this stuff that you haven't had to think of before. There's no playbook. That keeps popping up. There is no playbook. It's not like you can go to 
the like entrepreneur Facebook group, which I literally asked your other friend. I was like, is there a Facebook group for this? Is there a venture capital Facebook group? (laughs) He didn't say that. He was like, no. He's like, but there is a community. You do have to just figure shit out. And look, you you have to do the same thing in banking because a lot of times you're going to learn some of the stuff, but a lot of it too, you are figuring out on the job. There is definitely a lot less structure And as you said, I mean, a lot of the stuff that you're doing, you're like, this is beneath me because it's like, let's open a bank account or let's look up our tech stuff or file this form. And we are totally incompetent. at Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I quit banking and went into teaching because I was like, I don't like the doing. I'm just going to be the academic. And now I'm an idea man. Yeah. Yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're going to bring Brian on here. And the key topic that we're going to discuss today is what is fixed income investing. But we're also going to get an understanding of what does a huge asset manager like Morgan Stanley Investment Management look like? We're only exploring one segment of that firm. We're exploring their fixed income division. And don't forget, for a refresher, if you need one, if you haven't listened to our Q&A from last week, we did do a primer on what is the yield curve. We will be talking about that in great detail today. But there are so many lessons that I think we can learn from Brian today that will apply to investing across a wide range of asset classes. And so uh, I'm really excited. Let's get into it here. So on today's episode, we have brought on Brian Weinstein, who is someone that I have known for, Brian, I feel like I've known you for 20 years now, but I haven't seen you. I haven't seen you in 10 years. So it is so good to see your face. And Brian is the head of fixed income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. For those of you who don't know what that is, full disclosure, neither Kristen nor I (laughs) knew exactly what that was. And not only are we allegedly experts in this field, but we both worked at Morgan Stanley. So we are hoping to pull back the curtain (laughs) for all of our listeners and honestly get just a Mm -hmm. deeper understanding for ourselves. But Brian, you work on the buy side. You have been on the buy side ever since I've known you. And today we're going to cover the topic of fixed income investing from the buy side standpoint. So before we really dig into this, can you talk us through your background? Like what got you into the industry? What was your path to a career in finance? And what was your foundation coming in? Yeah, listen, I am the most accidental person in my role that you will find. And I could challenge you guys to go find out. You could probably find some parallels, but it's just weird. It's a bit random. So I, I'm a history major from the University of Pennsylvania. Hey now, I didn't um, know you were a history major. Yeah, I have no degrees worth mentioning beyond that. No degrees worth mentioning, no degrees at all besides <laughs> that. That was going to take me to law school. I wanted to be a courtroom attorney because I watched too much. Because you watch Law and Order. Anyway, I got a little lucky because I think my friends in law don't seem quite as thrilled about it as I thought they were going to be. So I didn't do that. I ended up getting an internship at a very unknown company called BlackRock. (laughs) But I'll tell you guys a story. I went to an info session. I was a freshman and I went to an info session after I met these guys. And another big investment bank was next door. And I think we got eight visitors to the info session. And I think the one next to us, I know they had a line out the door and they had like shrimp cocktail and we had nothing. There was no food. Like I was like, oh my God, I picked the worst company ever. It was probably Lehman um, Brothers next door. Um, with shrimp it, was, it was another investment bank. But anyway, it, listen, the big recruiters at Penn were the big consulting firms and the big investment banks, right? Mm-hmm. So BlackRock, asset management, you guys asked me, you know, what's investment management? Nobody knew what it was, right? You wanted to go to sales and trading or investment banking. And so I joined this company. I was... 
I don't know, somewhere around employee 150, 170. I mean, I was- You were the 150th employee at BlackRock? What? I was an intern. Yeah, I was 19. I was 19. Oh my God. Wait, Ryan, this is so cool. And it's funny because we talk about this because everyone we talk to now is like, I want to be in private equity. I'm 12. We literally got a message from a (laughs) 12-year-old, like, which we felt uncomfortable responding to. Who's like, I know what I want to be when I'm 23. Can you help me forge a path to private equity? And I was like, maybe there are other things out there. I feel like asset management is now unknown again, relative yes. to all these other things that are more high profile. Yeah. Well, listen, the, the high octane side of asset management has gone through what fixed income went through the 30 years prior, right? So when you yeah. rally for 30 years, everyone looks pretty cool, right? It's like, yeah. oh my God, look how smart I am. Everything does well. And then well, by the way, the Fed bails you out every 10 years during that period, it's even better because you don't get defaults. So private equity, private credit has had that, I think in the last 10 or 15 massive growth, very few defaults. Yields and fixed income were so darn low. So low. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, by the way, we're going to figure out, you know, I think my job is pretty cool and no one else thinks so, but fixed income is- I think your job is cool. cool. (laughs) It's one of those things. Listen, even if you don't believe me and you want to be in private equity, you have to understand the fixed income markets to do your job. How are you going to fund your leveraged buyouts if you don't know what rates are doing? All the problems in the world and all the opportunities in the private equity world, both, they start with financing. And if you don't understand fixed income, you don't understand financing. And it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Right. So if you think commercial real estate is going to blow up, well, listen, if commercial lending rates go to 18 percent, if you don't think it's going to matter to the real estate market, like, so it's all connected. Anyway, I digress. Mm-hmm. So no, I no, vote. no. This is literally at the heart of what I feel like we always talk yeah. about on the fixed income side is that people don't understand how this is the real lever that moves the world. That's and right. it, That's right. it, it is the most fundamental thing. And it might not sound like the sexiest thing, but once you understand it, it is pretty sexy. No, it's, it, we're yes. involved in, in mm-hmm. lots of stuff. So anyway, I uh, started there. What so. were you doing in your internship at BlackRock? Oh my gosh. So I didn't remember, I didn't know anything about anything. So uh-huh. I think, first of all, I think I showed up and they didn't remember they hired me. So that was a little <laughs> scary, but they found something. I think I did data entry for a little while. Uh-huh. And then actually a good friend of mine tossed me a book called Learning Pearl in 21 Days, a programming language. Um, oh. you probably, it would probably be R or Python today. But okay, got so, it. He said, you had 10 days to make yourself useful. He wasn't that mean about it. He just, he's like, maybe you'll learn it in 10 days. He's like, and if you do, we'll go out. And if you don't, you know, whatever. So I learned it. Um, and I started programming. And I, listen, they were growing so quickly, obviously, right? It went uh-huh. to, when I left in 14, it was 13,000 people. They just needed people that could learn and do stuff. So credit to my peers and bosses there. They taught me fixed income. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, listen, it's, the, it's one of the original fixed income asset managers. Mm-hmm. No one really believed that the world needed such a thing back then. Larry Fink and, and Rob Capito obviously did. And it took a little while, but they, they figured it out. And uh, I got to go along for the ride. So I started there. I thought I'd be there forever. Listen, it got big. I like things where I can touch culture a bit more and be, I, I don't know, to like, I like things that are dynamic. The reason why I stayed in fixed income in markets, besides having the best teachers ever, and maybe the best investment management story ever as a wind in the sail was it's always changing, right? You don't uh-huh. know what the markets are going to do today. You don't know what's happening. You're wrong all the time. It's very humbling, but you still have to t- talk a good game. You still have to learn from it. You have to constantly adjust. I learned on the macro side. So I was never yeah. a researcher in terms of companies. I did inflation mm-hmm. research. I did US agency research. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which became very relevant in mm-hmm. 2008, right? When they effectively blew up the, the world. I love doing that. And I just grew up there. I mean, we grew so quickly, created mm-hmm. opportunity. It created just a knowledge base of fixed income. Because again, I lived through all the crises 
agencies. I got to watch some of the world's best portfolio managers and obviously the world's best business builders. My boss, Dan Simkowitz, now always says, I've only been in this business for you know 20 something years, but it's really 40 something years because BlackRock counts 2X. And then listen, in 14, I walked away, good track record. I was managing about $300 billion of assets, which is a big number, but I wanted to learn something new. And yeah. so I started my own private credit company called Blue Elephant Capital. It's still going. Someone just bought them. So I'm not part of it anymore, but that was awesome because a couple of things, not being part of a big company, being part of a very small company where it's you know funded by the partners, mm-hmm. you learn everything else, right? You learn legal, yeah. compliance, payroll, every dollar that comes in and out. It's a terrifying experience. Anyway, so I learned how to run a company. And then when I got I talked about, sorry, call, the private credit component of Blue Elephant. Yeah. So what we were doing um, actually became on the run much more quickly than we thought it was. So mm-hmm. it's starting in 2013, I came a little bit later. We yep. were buying directly originated loans from fintech lenders. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So think about Lending Club, Prosper. There was this little bubble, really, of these fintech lenders. Some combination of traditional lending and I don't know if I'd call it AI-based. It's funny. People love that term, but <laughs> certainly some technology-influenced lending. It's some combination of fixed income because you're making loans. So it's amazing. When, you, when we went to see these fintech lenders, they'd be like, look at our cool technology. I'd be like, great. How do you know the investors are going to pay you back? And they're like, well, don't worry about it. It's cool technology. And I was like, well, <laughs> making a loan is actually easy, right? I can lend you guys money right now. Collecting money, much, much more difficult, right? <laughs> Why are you going to pay me back? Can you pay me back? And it turns out, you know, it kind of came home to roost. But in the meantime, what Blue Elephant did was they transitioned from being a fintech lender to just being a specialty lender. So they've gotten themselves involved with a whole lot of niche um, lending arenas like recreational boat lending and uh, heavy equipment lending. So they do a lot of direct lending in that space. And so I got to learn you're a bit of a venture capitalist because you have to look at these Mm -hmm. unknown companies and figure out if they're still going to be around. So you do some VC work. You do a lot of fixed income work as you look at the loans and how they've performed. And then you do a lot. People forget this fixed income, too. It's an operational risk business. If you own a mortgage bond and there's 10,000 mortgage pools in there, the money has to get from us who pay our mortgage every month Point to the bank, to the servicer, and then to the bondholder. So it's an operationally intense business. And so that was eye-opening. And by the way, a lot of stuff that I do now, my investors have to have a great experience. Morgan Stanley, what do we do? We invest money for people and make sure they have a great experience. Mm-hmm. Investing money is what we know. That's what I know how to do. And then I got a call in 18 saying, hey, could you come run Morgan Stanley Investment Management, kind of get it on the map. So thank you guys. Hopefully people know Yay. we're out there a bit more today. So I, I tell people I, I'm not qualified, but I got my undergraduate degree at BlackRock and I got my master's at Blue Elephant. And so I have my job because I know some stuff. I'm not so great on paper, but I do know a whole bunch from having done it. We would love if you could help us and our listeners understand <laughs> what investment management is at Morgan Stanley, the role it plays at Morgan Stanley, what a career looks like on the day-to-day basis, what the overall trajectory looks like. And then we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of fixed income investing from, from your expertise. Okay. So what is MSIM? <laughs> yeah, sure. Thank you so much for asking. And by the way, I didn't know what it was having been in here for 20 years. So one, one of the reasons I joined was to help get the word out. And obviously more work is to be done because we haven't gotten it all the way to you guys. So I'm glad we're, we're doing this today. So Morgan Stanley Investment Management. So Morgan Stanley is widely thought of as a bank, though that's probably maybe the worst way to describe it because before the crisis, it wasn't even that. It was an investment bank, right? So Morgan right. Stanley has, 
has the investment bank, which has um, investment bankers and, and sales and trading, where I know we have uh, plenty of, of expertise. It has the very famous wealth management brand, hopefully the best in the US, certainly, if not the world. And that is a, a combination of a bunch of legacies. People will say Smith Barney. Sure, Smith Barney is in there. So Morgan Stanley Wealth is the second uh, leg of the stool. And then the uh, least well-known Morgan Stanley Investment Management. What do we do? So we allocate capital for um, institutional and retail investors into things beyond fixed income. In my world is public fixed income, but we do public equities. We do infrastructure and real estate. And these are private markets, a bit harder to access, um, but we can get to that later. Obviously, real estate's been in the news, private credit, private equity, those type of investments too. So Morgan Stanley Investment Management is a full service asset manager. There are some very well-known ones out there. I grew up at BlackRock, uh, not to advertise them. They do they do fine on their own, but I grew uh -huh. up there. They are well-known. They are an asset manager and Morgan Stanley Investment Management does much more active management. We don't have the passive arm, but there are similarities to the businesses. Okay. So let's talk about that. So you're talking about active versus passive management. That's something that we really want to dig into, I think, a little bit. So first of all, what do you mean by active versus passive investment management? Sure. Listen, it's a well-known statistic out there that you want to invest in passive and ETFs will be the vehicle people choose mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they're tax efficient and you pay low fees. It's really an equity concept, right? Because if you look mm -hmm. at the history, and I'm not an equity guy, but I guess the stats that I read are the same that you read, which is <laughs> managers tend not to beat their benchmark. So why pay big fees? And it's true in different markets in different times. Fixed yep. income is a little bit more strange, right? If you think about, look at this current equity market, right? If you've owned the seven big equities, You've made a lot of money. If you own mm -hmm. the next 493 in the S&P 500, you've <laughs> yeah. made very little, right? Yeah. And so yeah. obviously people sit there and go, oh, I should have 100% of my money in, pick your favorite of those big seven equities. Apple, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's generally not the way the world works. Fixed income is very, very, very different, right? So if you think about fixed income, it's debt. So we can think about ourselves, right? If you have a friend with too much debt, would you want to be the financial backer of that friend specifically? No. Nope. Maybe not. Or maybe you charge a rate for it, right? So if you think about a fixed income index, S&P 500 is the biggest 500 US-based companies that are there. In fixed income, it's the things that are, have highest weight have the most amount of debt, just like that friend mm -hmm. you might not want to invest in. So in fixed income, passive, yes, you pay lower fees. But generally speaking, it's not the same as equities. Active managers do actually tend to outperform the index, especially when you get to things like high yield, things that are riskier. Um, we can talk about that. So passive would be just owning the stuff with the most debt, the most famous. You guys know the story is the, the old Lehman Aggregate Index. Um, now what is it? It's the Bloomberg the, Ag the now, Bloomberg right? Bloomberg Aggregate Index. Yeah, it went through like three rebrandings. Three rebrandings. But anyone who's been as old as we are calls it the Lehman, Lehman Aggregate Ag, Index. Lehman Ag, of course. <laughs> Ag, the Bar yep. the, then the Barclays Ag, now the, the Bloomberg yeah. Ag. That has U.S. Treasuries, which obviously U.S. has a lot of debt. U.S mortgages, so the mortgage debt that we might all take out, also backed by the government, and then corporate debt. And the biggest issuers are the ones with the most debt. Now, the U.S. government, maybe we should worry a little bit, but obviously they're going to pay us back. And then as you get down into riskier corporate debt and high yield and things like that, it gets harder and harder. So active fixed income, what we do, we do research on everything we buy. Right. So we're not going to buy the most of name X just because they issued a lot. We're going to buy the most of the names that we like because we think you get better return and you take less risk. And then you simply will not buy things that you research that are going to default. Because remember, in bonds, you buy for par, you, get, mm -hmm. you buy for $100 and you get $100 back. In the interim, you get a coupon. What you don't want is to get $30 back at the end. Our job is to make sure we don't buy things that are going to default. I love that. And one of the things that you were just talking about was the research aspect of the investment strategy. 
what is the mechanics of that? Like, how does that fit in? Who is doing that research? Is yeah. there a research department? Is it individual portfolio managers? Like, where is the role of research in all of this? Right. So let's get into MSIM fixed income. So MSIM manages about $1.4 trillion in assets across all those things that I, that I mentioned, all the private and public markets. Fixed income is just short of $200 billion. And, uh, and that doesn't count our money market business, which again is a cash management business, which is another $300 billion. But we do research for them too. And what does that mean? It means if I walked you onto a team, so let's say you wanted to think about, let's think about something risky, like the emerging markets business, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, you're not going to show up and buy a country that has had instability in government without doing research. So if you, I walked you onto that team, you would find 12 or 15 people on a couple different countries that literally spend their time looking at newspapers, talking to government officials, going on, on trips to countries and actually being on the ground, going to institutions, seeing if they're stable, speaking to people, speaking to local investors. If I walked you onto the high yield desk, again, multiple countries, you would find people that are sitting around talking to the CFOs of companies we invest in. And by the way, not just speaking with them, questioning them, right? About their, maybe it's about their ESG practices, right? Maybe it's about their most recent earnings. Maybe it's about a trend in the industry. There's been defaults and people have too much debt and what are they doing about it? And by the way, it's not just one company. If we're talking about emerging markets, someone will cover a big chunk of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. In high yield, someone will cover chemicals or healthcare, right? Yeah. So they know not just one company, but they know the industry. And their job is to figure out what they like and also to figure out, is the industry going in a good direction or a bad direction, right? Mm-hmm. Something like COVID, companies that can't control their own supply chains or can't raise prices, you're going to have a more negative view than companies that can or industries that can. And so they're thinking about those things and they don't all sit in bubbles. They, they sit together. And mm-hmm. we also talk about macro things. So obviously economies matter and central banks matter. And, and so fixed income, it can sound very complicated, but it comes down very simply to do we think we're getting compensated for the risk of a company defaulting? Many of us do deep research on companies or countries, and sometimes both, by the way, there's there's plenty of corporate debt in emerging markets, and make sure that our investors, those you know who buy stuff from MSIM, generally speaking, it's pension funds and endowments. We own the Advanced Family of Funds, which is a tremendously successful and high-performing um, mutual fund family in the US, all active. And so the best ideas go into those funds, and each fund is is set up so that you understand what risk you're taking. Not that we just take whatever risk we want. Investors want yield, they want safety, they want duration. We could talk about all those terms. Mm-hmm. And we try to create baskets of bonds for them that will help them meet their goals. Okay, got it. So within your world of institutional and retail investors, everyone comes to you with a different set of risk appetites and a different set of investment goals and objectives. And you say, okay, well, based on this, you need to buy into this fund. Based on that, you need some combination of funds across your portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. And then each of those funds is managed by individual teams of portfolio managers? Yes. So if you think about the rest of our team, we're divided up into eight teams. I won't go. I won't go through every single one. But yes, each team is set up to focus on their specific area. Because mm-hmm. if you want a high yield portfolio, or if you want a combination of U.S. government bonds and credit, like the the aggregate index we spoke about before, yep. you actually want different teams constructing that basket because mm-hmm. they do have different goals, they do have different risks. And so the other people on each team, the teams are divided into portfolio managers. And listen, portfolio managers get. They're like the quarterback of a of an NFL team, right? Uh-huh. They're the ones who get the they get the MVP votes, right? They're the <laughs> ones who get the they get to go to the award shows. But the truth is, they don't do it by themselves, right? Being a portfolio uh-huh. manager, almost always you came from one of these other roles. So we have traders, right? We have the people that are sitting around. Fixed income is hard. There are millions of QCIPs. QCIPs are just the identifier for a bond. So if yes. you look up the U.S. ten-year note, you'll find it has what's called a QCIP. It's a nine-digit identifier. 
And that just identifies it as a publicly traded security that you can trace on whatever system you, you choose. In equities, again, there's a couple thousand equities. They generally trade every day and you can find a price for them every day. Mm-hmm. There are hundreds of thousands of bonds that don't trade. I think there's 66,000 municipal bond issuers, right? And so there are bonds that never, ever trade. So the traders on each team, their job is to know what's out there, to know what the right price is, to know what we're trying to accomplish. So they're the conduit between your sell side brethren, the, the sales and trading people, people with inventory, and also the ETF market makers. And their job is to understand the market today. So mm-hmm. those are the traders. The research people are obviously keeping them informed. Don't buy this name, right? You know, we take this name off the buy list or we added this one to the list. Then we have client portfolio managers that basically are speaking to the clients a lot more, making sure we understand what they want. Again, portfolio management is not the act of trading and making money every day, though it would be fun if it were. Um, It's the art of making sure you get what you want into the basket for the client within their rules. So we have a team of people that are basically doing portfolio analysis, basically making sure that we translate all those things, the the liquidity, the ideas, the portfolio manager's view into an actual portfolio that works. Each team is structured in in that way, though each team will find it has a different overarching investment style of how much risk they take and why, but they're structured in in very similar ways. I have a question. So I feel like everyone, they hear like, ooh, the portfolio manager, that's like where people want to get to. So are usually the portfolio managers coming from like the research side or are they the traders? Where are they normally? As I said, I should (laughs) use that quarter. They are like the quarterback, right? So they have this great offensive line. And without the offensive line, they can't do anything. But you only want to talk about the the quarterback. (laughs) Uh, I call myself a reformed portfolio manager. So I know all the good (laughs) good and bad things. That was my job for most of my career was uh, having a great offensive line and taking all the credit. So I hope I did a better job than others. Um, um, Yes. Every investment management shop is different. Our portfolio managers tend to come from research, right? If you think about research people, they are portfolio managers, right? You can't go to a client and say you have 120 portfolio managers. It's just too confusing. And there are some people who are just very good at synthesizing. Like, listen, if if, if it's a bull market, you're going to find a lot of people like a lot of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just put everyone's ideas into a portfolio. You end up with too much correlation and too much risk and go back to 08. Right for any example, any example you want to live mm-hmm. through, we, we did we did wrong, and not not we Emson, but we the the, uh, the the market did wrong in 08, Right, if too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. So there are people who are very good at synthesizing lots of ideas, lots of information into a portfolio. By the way, there are many people who don't get the, I don't know, fame's the wrong word. We're not famous, but they don't appear yeah. on podcasts and things yeah. who, who, are, who are very good at clients have very specific goals. Right? Sure. If you think about if you're an insurance company, you can't take gains and losses depending on how your balance sheet looks. And so there are a lot of nuances about the way people do these things. So I actually didn't come from research as a portfolio manager. I came out of more um, macro and, and risk-taking and portfolio construction. I wouldn't say it's rare, but it depends on the on the shops. Some shops are more focused on that. We happen to be very research-oriented, and so our portfolio managers tend to come out of research. Well, we've, we've had portfolio managers come out of operations. We've had them come out of client service. It's a funny skill set. You don't, It's not like you go to college or graduate school and come out as a portfolio manager. Definitely Usually, not. Yeah. <laughs> you take some experience and a little bit of, it's a little bit of art and science. It depends yeah. where you are um, in, in terms of the, the mantra that that firm has. And so let's talk about the actual investments that are going into these portfolios. And one of the things that I feel like we're up against a lot is when we talk about investing, I think the average person thinks of buying the market, right? If I'm investing, I'm clearly just getting long whatever the asset is, whether it be the equities market, the fixed income market, whatever it may be. What does that really mean from your standpoint? Are you expressing long-only views? Do you have the availability to... 
let me try that again. Do you have the ability to, you know, express all views, right? Short duration, curve trades, volatility exposure, things like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I agree, by the way, you know, buying the market in fixed income is a very different concept. Uh, someone I, I work with always reminds me, if you look at, again, pick your favorite of the big seven uh, equities, it, they can go up and down a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no necessary trend line you can draw. Equities don't have that pull to par. So they can mm -hmm. go up to close to infinity and they can obviously go down to zero. Whereas if you look at a fixed income chart, you're bounded by par. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you buy a bond at, at 100, yeah, it could go to 120, 130. And we've had bonds go higher than that in the 30 year bull market. But inevitably at their maturity date, hopefully they're back to par. So you get right. this natural pull, which we can talk about. So, yeah, we don't think about necessarily just buying the, the market when we think about fixed income. Gosh, it's so hard to, to put it into, into the right words. I guess there's really two parts to fixed income that are worth mentioning when you buy the market, right? Listen, there is this natural hedge to fixed income where if you think the world is going to end, you don't want to own fixed income, you want to own U.S. Treasuries, right? Mm -hmm. U.S. Treasury is the benchmark standard of the fixed income market. I don't know, the, I won't name an equity, but I can't, I'm sure, I know there's a couple of equities people like to think of as like, if everything is down, these one or two are up. Well, yeah, equity, but there's no yeah. risk-free equity no, investment no by definition. <laughs> And there's no yeah. guarantee in, in fixed income either. But if you look back at any crisis, we can use the mini bank run from a couple of months ago, or mm -hmm. we can use COVID, obviously, and there's some bigger ones before that. Listen, what so what makes a yield, right? Why does the U.S. Treasury yield 3.8% today? Well, theoretically, it's the market's best guess of, think of it two ways, where the Fed funds rate will be on average over the next 10 years, risk-free, mm -hmm. plus some risk premium, which we can argue about. I like to think about it more as the 10-year expectation of growth plus inflation. If the world's going to end, right, if there's no more growth and no more inflation, by definition, the 10-year Treasury rate should fall. And by yep. the way, when the Treasury 10-year Treasury rate moves 100 basis points, if it goes from 3.8 to 2.8, you don't make 1%, you make 8%, right? People forget that, right? So yeah. why? Because yeah. it, it has duration. The, the yield change has a multiplier of 8. If we move 0.1%, you make 80 basis points, 0.8% on duration. So anyway, if you're going to buy the market because you're afraid or you want pure safety, there's really only one way to do it, which is to buy a government bond fund. And I'm um, just going to jump in. And for our listeners who need a quick tutorial on duration, we actually have a couple of videos on explaining duration and convexity in layman's terms. And Brian, I, I hope you're not on social media looking at these. You'll probably, <laughs> I'll die of embarrassment if you are. But uh, this no, is I'm how glad we've attempted to explain. Yeah, right, people don't understand. Going to, doing the airplane thing with yields up, price <laughs> yes, down. Yeah, yeah the airplane thing. I hope you hands. did that in your tutorial. <laughs> Um, I actually tried not to, which is Okay, hilarious. you should. You have to do that. I think it's mandatory. <laughs> but that's the thing that most people don't understand. The way bond math is taught is always, you talk about that pull to par, and that is such an important piece of it. But the way that in reality, when you are trading the market on a day-to-day -day basis, you are thinking about your gains and losses is always going to be from a duration multiplier standpoint, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. You're not thinking about like, oh, I bought this bond at, you know, 102.08 and now it's at 102.05. Whatever <laughs> right. will I do? Although I will say, Jen, if it still seems fuzzy to listeners, right, if you wait for a big move in the bond market, so wait for a day where the bond market moves 10 or 15 basis points and you go, oh, who cares? It's 10 or 15 basis points. The equity market moved 100, moved a percent. Mm -hmm. Go look at the big you know, mutual funds or the big ETFs, they will move 30, 40, 50 cents. And so the move is actually some days when the equity market moves a lot, the fixed income move is just as large 
but if you only we're way bigger way bigger because you think about just the notional outstanding in the fixed income market relative to the equities market right we're talking about trillions and trillions and trillions of notional in derivatives contracts and in in face value of bonds versus again there's only so many equities outstanding in the big (laughs) seven right there's only so much money out there whatever you Um, want to talk about it's crazy anyway so the second part to your question is kind of investing in fixed income away from Mm -hmm. protecting yourself in a a risk-off move Mm -hmm. so the way (laughs) that's funny the way i was taught fixed income and we kind of got lost over the ensuing 20-something years is that you buy something and it gives you a coupon and you don't really worry about how much it moves every day. Back then, and actually there's a period certainly we lived through recently where this actually is relevant, yields were reasonable. So you buy a money market fund today and you're going to earn 5% or five and a quarter over the course of the year. I want to talk about this with you. Right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so you're literally just going to get a little bit of money market funds. Specifically, you get a little bit of money every day, right? And by, like bonds, are, bonds are a little different because you buy a bond, you get your coupon over six months, but you do accrue interest. So if you do sell it, you get credit for that period. So we only mm-hmm. see the money come in every six months usually. But if mm-hmm. you buy a high yield portfolio at 9% or a lever loan portfolio at 10%, you get that return minus whatever defaults, right? Mm-hmm. And then yes, you get mark to market. So we think about fixed income, especially now that yields are back, kind of you look at 09, most of the 09 to to twenty. One and a half period. It's been 15 years with no yield. Right. And so the game became, and this I think burned people at the end. Well, if I can keep squeezing out and selling it back to central banks and yields keep falling, I get that multiplier effect. So if 10 year notes go from 3% to 2% and 2% to 1% over two years, I make 8% each year. Well, that seems pretty damn good. But the problem is your coupon at 1% meant that you couldn't survive any duration move. So when 10-year notes went from 1% back to 4 you wiped out like seven years of coupon. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if this had been a couple of years ago, we were advising investors, be careful, right? You don't want to own duration. Mm-hmm. Coupons are hard to come by. Now it's different. So the way we invest in the market, to your point, is we're looking for companies that, you know, a lot of stuff went down uh, in price a lot last year uh-huh. um, and still hasn't recovered that much. So we don't need to buy a lot of U.S. Treasuries at you know 3.8% when we can buy high yield. Again, this is why you want an active manager. You don't want to you don't want to try to do this yourself on your right. you know fill in your favorite retail account. Like you don't want to try to go buy high yield bonds without doing research or buy random ones and have chunky exposure. You can build a diverse portfolio of stuff that has a coupon between six and eight percent. And if you want a municipal portfolio tax free, high yield munis are great. So yeah, be super careful with them. There, there's going to be a ton of defaults in high yield muni space. Are there? Um, yes, there are. Um, because again, during during a debt cycle like we've had, mm-hmm. there's been very little discipline enforced on people. And now, remember, if you borrowed money at two percent four years ago and you refinance at six or eight percent, eventually that hits your margin. Um, and so yeah, we, we there's lots of opportunity, but we're not trying to buy the market. We're actually trying to allocate to coupons where we think we have knowledge base suggesting that that coupon will come through. And by the way, you start to get to six, 8%. And I know equity, I know that I know the NASDAQ's done this year. So people mm-hmm. go, yeah, yeah. But the <laughs> truth is over long periods of time, if you get that every year, you're doing pretty well. Seriously. Um, well, yeah. I was going to say too, I feel like fixed income is kind of so much more interesting if you're analyzing it from like the perspective of, well, what's going to happen if something goes wrong? Because it's not just all of the crazy stuff with how the price moves like this and there, but then even if there is like a liquidation, it's like, well, which of the different bonds is going to actually get to recover? I mean, and depending on how it's issued, if there's like, you know, it's at the operating company or the holding company, <laughs> it's just, there's so much there that I feel like a lot of people have absolutely no idea 
about. Yeah, like it's so. In many cases, they're okay, but you're right. When things get weird, all of a sudden yeah. you learn all these terms like op- yeah, operating yeah. company, holding companies. Like yeah, which, yeah. which one do I own? So the truth yeah. is, the average investor shouldn't be sitting around worrying about that. <laughs> That's um, more a distressed investor. Well, it's not only that. No, it's not that. It's the average. Listen, we have people doing research. We're not the mm-hmm. world's biggest asset manager. But like those people, like there are so many people out there doing this work. The danger of being the the lone wolf picking through an inventory of a retail is that you just happen to buy the wrong thing, right? You can't, you personally, listeners can't, unless everyone's going to team together and kind of recreate our model and trust each other. You can't do research on all the companies. The cheapest company may very well be the one that's going to default. Listen, I don't do this, right? I don't pick my own equities and I don't pick my own bonds. Why? Because I know that there are literally thousands of people with a more informed view than I. And so, oh oh my God, this is in the news. I'm going to go buy one of the big seven. Well, what do I know? I don't know anything. So listen, financial advisors, the the Morgan Stanley Wealth folks, they have access to all the Morgan Stanley research. And so they don't know, but they have a well-informed opinion and they'll diversify me. So it's not emotional. And then mm-hmm. in bonds, we know, right? My team knows, right? If, if the holding company is going to default, but the operating company is going to be okay, those operating company bonds might go down just as much as the other bonds. Right. And then you buy them, buy them, buy them. And then the default happens and it turns out you win, right? Yeah. And, and yes, there are plenty of distressed investors. We all know the famous names out there. And those guys <laughs> have their own teams of people that read through the right. documents and then the right. lawyers get involved. And so yeah. it's complicated. Yeah. And Jen, you ask, can we short stuff? Um, we can. Our investments tend to be, we at um, Emson Fixed Income don't run a hedge fund. Right. It's hard when you try to do everything, but we can buy protection on things. We can be short duration. Most of our investors don't want that because, mm-hmm. again, if you think there's a big sell off because growth is going to go up, then you just move your allocation from the money market funds to equities or maybe you buy something in risky space. We get a big coupon. So we don't have a huge demand for people that are like, oh, my God, short this for me today. It's, you know, it's, it's going to go down. But certainly we can protect ourselves against the broad indices. But I would think of us as investors that tend to be long term holders having done work and buying things that we like and selling things that we don't. It's not so much that we're trading it around every day, trying to squeeze out every last cent. And by the way, I've done that job. We have, you know, there are many brilliant people doing that job, but it's a different job than traditional investment management. And one of the things that you really touched on there that I think is so important to hammer home for our listeners is all of the all of the intricacy you just talked about and what goes into the decision to buy or not buy one corporate bond. Think about the massive asymmetry of information present there in that one decision versus the average person turning on, I don't know, Jim Cramer or, you know, CNBC and trying to piece this all together. And so as such, that is why this expertise is so incredibly valuable and differentiating from, again, the average layperson, the average retail investor. And even these insurance and pension companies who are your clients, they are not in the business of researching what bonds to invest in. They are in the business of paying out insurance claims on a car crash or whatever it might be, or making sure that your teachers get paid their pensions at the end of the day. No, listen, John, I love that point. And listen, I go on CNBC and Bloomberg TV all the time. And you know, I always think about myself as a bit of a, of a talking head because no one ever comes back to me and says, hey, you were wrong. Or, hey, you, I mean, I track it. Right? I'm, trying to, I'm trying to give an honest view and make predictions. I don't make outlandish statements. You can do lots of things on there to get press, right? But the problem with that is that, again, they don't come back to you and go, oh, last time you said X and now you said Y. So invest, but for investors- They're not like, Brian, you were dumb last time. Can dumb. you be smarter um, this time? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm dumb all the time. Like, again, this job, you're wrong a lot. And anyone listening to the podcast trying to figure this out. So I think, listen, I think the disservice that Wall Street tends to do to individual investors is we overcomplicate things. Right. Mm-hmm. So, oh, my God, duration is such a scary term. I'm just going to ignore it and let, you know, I'll just buy and sell what goes up and down. Well, actually, duration is one of those things you can figure out. But when you get into all the different funds and all the different categories and all the different asset classes, I do think 
yeah, you have to find a way to, to simplify, right? What is it that we're trying to buy? Well, it's either duration risk or it's credit risk or mm-hmm. some combination of the two. There's really right. no other. There's really nothing else, right? Yeah, you can get into structured credit and you can make it sound complicated, but we can, it's just credit. And then I think the place where we do do a valuable service is what you said, it's information. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't expect, I wouldn't wish on anyone trying to research every company in the high yield index. It's an impossible job. And so just like you said, if the insurance companies have chosen to outsource that job to us, Mm -hmm. I would think that individual investors would gladly do it. And for that, you do pay a fee. Yes. But again, I would do them. You can look at the math. In fixed income, there are plenty, plenty of active funds that beat the passive funds after fees. So people mm-hmm. take that equity lesson applied to fixed income because debt defaults more and because you don't want to own the index. I think it's the wrong lesson. Um, mm-hmm. I get low fees. I get why it matters. But the research thing is truly important in fixed income, especially when you get away from the things that tend not to default. Can you expand a little bit on one idea you mentioned just briefly there for our listeners, because this isn't something that we've tackled on our podcast yet. How do you isolate credit risk from duration risk? The answer is they're they're related. So you don't ever do it 100%, right? So the way to think about it, the way I was taught, um, is you say, okay, you can draw the treasury curve, right? And you don't have to be fancy, go and get the two-year, the five-year, the 10-year, the 30-year, draw a line, pretty close, right? It won't be perfect. So that's your risk-free rate across the curve. And by the way, you can cut it, pretty much cut it off at 10 years. There are longer dated corporate bonds, but there aren't that many. There's some in muni land. There's some in investment grade. High yield tends to be in that kind of five-year part of the curve. And so you don't really have to go out that far. And so basically- Someone's risky. You're not lending them money for 50 years like you are to The math isn't worth it. And and yeah, yeah, who knows if they'll be around. So anyway, so you got that five-year point. And so there's really two ways you can do it. You can look for vehicles or funds or even individual bonds that have a maturity in the next couple of years. So the duration multiplier on, say, a two-year uh, or something that's called short duration or ultra short duration means they've kind of taken out the duration risk for you. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a cost to that usually. This yield curve is very oddly shaped with the front end being the highest point right. and it's coming down. Normally, it's the opposite. So the cost is normally for locking in that very short cash flow. You don't get paid that much. It's not right. 100% true right now. So if you look for short duration funds or ultra short duration funds, that's a good way to do it. I think the better way to do it is to look at high yield emerging market and bank loan funds, because mm-hmm. the truth is those funds are not in the business of taking a lot of duration risk. So I guess the other way to say it, the deeper you get into credit, the less duration has an impact. So mm-hmm. if the five-year note is 4% today, and it's going to be 380 or 420 in two weeks, the high yield market doesn't care, right? You're getting mm-hmm. paid eight or nine percent, and so the difference is a fraction. It'll move. It'll move a little bit. By the way, a bank loan fund, which people tend not to look at, those are floating rate. Uh-huh. So the bank loan market has taken out all the duration for you. Mm-hmm. All you're getting paid is basically the front end coupon, the Fed funds rate, or SOFR plus a spread. So not to make it confusing, but it's a high number, right? So you're getting five and a right. quarter plus three to hundred plus. You're getting close to ten percent um, mm-hmm. for that index, and then emerging markets are just different correlations. So emerging markets have their own duration. They have their own lower their own yield curve, curve. Their own right. you know, sovereign yield curve, I guess is the right way to say it. If you go, oh, I like the coupon, but I think the tenure is going to go up a lot. I would recommend looking at those asset classes, probably bank loans, high yield and emerging markets will be tied for second. But those are the asset classes that will naturally protect you. So those are the two ways I can think to do it in an individual investor space. So if you have the opposite view, then flip what I said. If you think growth is going down, it's a recession, then you want to start moving your money from high yield and bank loans and you want to move it into something safer. So the duration side is a bit the safer side. You generally get paid for taking duration risk because that yield curve is upward sloping. This is not one of those times. You do not get paid for taking duration risk. So okay. therefore, you've owned some money market funds and you should own some riskier funds. 
So let's talk about the yield curve shape. We got into this a little bit, and I think it's something that's so fascinating right now as we find ourselves kind of on the precipice of shifting Fed policy. I mean, after the inflation data we had, we are now looking at a very, very different forward curve. Do you believe the forward curve? What do you think about trading in this kind of inverted yield curve environment? And what do you think the best points are to buy going forward? I've generally been a believer in my career that the fixed income market is right. Um, mm. In other words, if you look at everyone's favorite example, the biggest one hopefully we ever lived through, the great financial crisis, the bond market called this in 2007 for the curve move, then, then the credit market moved. And we all thought we were losing our minds because and I was pretty young. And so I was kind of watching and trying to learn, but it took another 18 months for the cracks. And even when it cracked in the, in the equity market, the first time the Fed came in, everyone said, yeah, it's over. And it took a really long mm-hmm. time have this really unfortunate and scarring impact, which we're all, you know, it, it still impacts everything that, that everybody does for better or for worse. And so I look at the yield curve today and I'm not as sure. I'm not ah. as sure. Not because I've gotten smarter than the market. That would never be a good theory. But because we've lived through this period of really low inflation, I built the inflation business on my old shop. That was what I focused on. And when, if you look back at inflation over a very, very long time, you can look back over a couple hundred years, even further, if you believe some of the extrapolations you find. Inflation <laughs> at 2% was never an achievable goal. And I don't Why mean not? that. If you look at inflation, it never averaged 2%. It averaged 2% over time, but it never was stable at 2 right? Mm-hmm. It might go up to 4 By the way, obviously, there are periods where it goes a lot higher. And the other thing about inflation that always bothers me is once it gets to like one and a half, people go, oh, my God, what if we're Japan? And then they panic. They right? panic, so there's, right? There's always this it's a asymmet- log normal environment yeah, for inflation. It's like an asymmetric yeah. response. So I think yeah. the Fed should have chosen two to three um, or two to four, right? The whole idea of inflation targeting was not so much that we can nail 2%. It was much more that if we, your listeners, believe that inflation is going to be low, you act differently, right? Uh-huh. The minute you're afraid of inflation, you spend money and then you drive the cost of those things up, right? Supply demand is mm-hmm. relatively straightforward. And so we've just lived through this period of really low inflation. Then we go to COVID. Then the government prints all this money. The Fed eases to zero. Supply chains get disrupted. I think we've fundamentally changed the way people think about inflation. I don't think people are afraid of deflation anymore. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be 9% like it was. It could go easily back down to, I think, into the mid uh, threes or dip a little bit and and, then come back up. I don't think inflation is going back to sub two. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is the central banks of the world have sucked up the supply all the government bonds. Go look at the yep. U.S. balance sheet. Look at the ECB's balance sheet. Don't look, but go look at the, what the Bank of Japan has done. <laughs> um, this is a whole story, a story for another day. And I just worry that we're too sanguine about inflation expectations. So 10-year U.S. break-evens, which is our best indicator of a long Oh, can you explain what a break-even is for, so, our, okay. for our listeners? So there's two types of government bonds. Uh-huh. There's the ones we all talk about, which, which are nominal bonds. They give you a, a fixed-rate coupon, which should represent growth plus inflation. So I said the 10-year, yep. you know, 3.8% should be growth plus inflation. There are TIPS, which are Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. They yes. give you a fixed rate that is actually the real rate, so the expected growth rate. And then they also give you the actual inflation on top of it once it comes out. So basically, if you subtract the yield of a tip from the corresponding maturity treasury, you get the expected inflation in between because they should be, if the market was perfect, exactly the same. So right now, that number is about 2.3%, call it, mm-hmm. on, the, on the, we're expecting 10-year inflation over the next 10 years to average 2.3%, 2.3. if you believe the market. I don't. It seems mm. too low. Too low. Too low. And I do wonder if taking out all these securities, the cost is... The Fed has obviously mechanically raised the front end, right? They've mm-hmm. literally taken rates from zero to, to five plus, right. but they have not really shrunk the balance sheet meaningfully. And so I am worried 
that not that we're entering some 30-year bear market in treasuries, mm -hmm. but we, we have rallied almost every year since we all, Chris and Jennifer, you and I, started, yes. the three of us started doing this. And so we've lost the thread a little bit that fixed income is supposed to be an income. And now the income is back. <laughs> People are buying it thinking it's going to go back down in yield or up in price. I don't think it's going to happen meaningfully. So I think you're supposed to lock in that coupon. Listen, here, put it this way. The market says in five years time, the five-year note should be 3.15% or so, mm -hmm. right? It's 3.8% today. So basically the market's saying this is easy. There's no inflation. The Fed did the job. Growth is going to fall. The Fed will ease a little bit. Equities obviously will go up, hopefully more than seven at some point, but it's going to be okay. And I don't think it's right. I think we're in this spot where the Fed raised rates a lot. We went to the impact for another 12 months in, in full. I don't think inflation will fall like people suggest. I don't think there's a big need for duration at 3% yield levels. By the way, the eights and nines and tens, I think are great, right? You can win with those. 3% mm -hmm. treasury note five years from now. I just don't think in an inflationary environment with growth being okay. It's not enough yield. And by the way, you want a scary chart, go look at what, since the debt ceiling, go look at what the government spent. So there's been no check on government spending. Anyway, it's a longer story. So no, for once, I don't believe the fixed income markets. I normally do. I think the curve will steepen, but not the way people think. I think maybe the two note can rally a little bit, but I think the longer end of the curve is going to go seek out a clearing level. And I do not think it's 3.8%. Do you think it's going to be like a little bit of a zoop, like that there's going to be, yeah, okay, I, yeah, I wish yeah, our yeah, listeners like, could, <laughs> could see the zoop, but it's like a yeah, dip a in the middle, dip, like a V almost. The, yeah. the technical definition of zoop, we should, uh, we should. <laughs> like say. a Nike swoosh, basically. Or like a swoosh, yeah, 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 you get a little bit of swoosh, yeah. Listen, I think the Fed, this Fed wants to be done. They've wanted to be done since December. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be done because they know they've done the job. They don't know. They want to be done because they've raised rates a lot and it takes yeah. a really long time to see what's going to happen. So the danger here is, and we're kind of seeing it, right? I, so the first half was, oh my God, growth didn't slow down at all. Well, mm -hmm. second half of the year, it will. We'll see. Mm -hmm. And this first half, oh my God, inflation's really falling. Money supply is really falling. Yeah, uh -huh, it's true. Inflation is math, right? So if last <laughs> September's print was 0.6% and this September's print is 0.2%, Right. Inflation is still actually going at 2.4 percent a year, but it's a lot slower than it was uh, when it was, was 7.2 percent a year. So I think the second half of the year is slower growth, but inflation after September starts to come back up. And then is the Fed really done? Are they really mm -hmm. going to ease? Mm -hmm. We're going to find out, but not for a while. Interesting. And how much of your lack of faith in the yield curve shape, how much of this is a perception, if any at all, that We've seen all the tools that the central banks have over the past 15 years. And the message was always, don't fight the Fed, don't fight the Fed. It's going to be QE forever to solve any problems. And we've used the monetary policy to get us out of the QE forever environment. But now what? The only other tool is back to QE forever, right? QT seems to be, I, I'm just curious, right? Like what your view is on, on Jen, faith what is QT? Quantitative tightening. Ah, uh, yeah. That I assumed. I just, no, this is the non interest no, yes, rate person yes, over yes, here. Yes, so yes. it's like, I wanted to just clarify the QT. Absolutely. I think what's interesting, guys, is that you're right. We know the tools, they, although they tend to invent more, right? During COVID, <laughs> we got true. the, the yeah. investment grade and the high yield buying, which uh, is also a whole conversation we could have. Interesting what they did. I think look at the asymmetric response. Uh -huh. So COVID happens. It's funny. I, I grew up in a world where everyone, everyone I grew up with had seen a bear market in bonds. And right. so most people wanted to be short duration when I thought rates would go up. And so I always kept a notebook of kind of what would make rates go up a lot. And my uh -huh. answer was, if you look back at the different crises, there were always differently timed responses. The Fed would ease a lot and then they'd run out of bullets and then the government would stimulate 
right? And then the Fed would tighten or it wouldn't work and the Fed would ease again and then they would tighten. So you never got fiscal and monetary stimulus at the same exact time. At the time. same time. During That's COVID, a really good point. You did it in the biggest way that the yes. world's ever seen, right? Yes. $3 trillion in stimulus from the government and the Fed going to zero plus the programs. So asymmetric response, right? The Fed said, oh my gosh, this could be this could be the death knell. We could be Japan because right. we've never gotten this thing right. We've never gotten growth. We've never gotten inflation. 08 to 2020 can uh-huh. be characterized by everyone overestimating growth the entire time, right? We uh-huh. never got a big recovery. It took a really long time to get out of that crisis. Look at the asymmetric response. We get inflation going almost into double digits, and the Fed does this baby QT program where they sell assets, quantitative tightening, but they never made it bigger. Yeah, They never panicked. By the way, by the time they hiked rates 50 basis points, the market was kind of laughing at them. And listen, right, let me right, give them a right. little bit of credit. They went from zero to five very, very quickly. Very quickly. Right? So you have to have some sympathy for the unknown. They were doing what they thought was right. So it's easy to criticize. It's a, it's a very, very difficult job. But asymmetric response. They could have at the same time said, let's double QT. Yeah. Last time they did a big QT program, the market imploded. Is it the same? Would it happen again? We don't know. But Was that okay. in like 80s? When, when did that happen? Was that, that, that was, was in 80s? No, no, no. They, they, the QT was eight. I'm 18, trying to think it was I think. 13 or 18. I think it was 18. 18. I right. Think they really 18. tried to push the balance sheet thing. And it, listen, I don't, I think, I think, I think it's 18. hard for the bank to sell assets. But like, if you really thought inflation was a problem and the market was questioning your dedication to it, you don't have to pick a big number. You could use it as a, as a signaling mechanism. So it's asymmetric response. The Fed is okay with inflation on the high side, they're not okay with it plummeting below one and a half, call it. Mm-hmm. Um, back to my original point it's not a 2% target, it's, it's the wrong target. So do I question their toolkit? No, I think it would be very difficult for them in this political environment if inflation stays well above their target, if the world were to go into a large downturn to use those tools mm-hmm. and convince Congress that they're actually doing their job of price stability. So I think their tool kit is available, but it's way on the back burner and they've shown their hand that they're willing to accept inflation a little bit higher. And I Uh think that psychological change and that actual change in monetary policy, I think eventually they'll change their target. It's a very hot button issue. That is, that is a big, that's a hot take, Brian. I I don't think they will look good for the next, they got a little bit lucky with the last 20 years. Um, (laughs) And by the way, it's a longer story. I think it'll be harder for them the next 20. So it's not Jay Powell's problem. Uh-huh. And it's going to take a tightrope, but I could see it being two to 3% or one to 3% or two to 4% or something, giving them a little bit. By the way, ECB has a similar problem. By the way, they chose headline inflation. So the European Central Bank, the Fed's counterpart in, uh, in, the, in the European Union, they chose 2% headline inflation. Versus, sorry, to to be clear for our listeners, versus core inflation, which is what the Fed focuses on. Right. So the Fed doesn't have to worry about food and energy. Well, I say they don't have to worry about it. They don't (laughs) have to worry about food and energy um, because it's so volatile, right? It's not not that they don't care. It's that, you know, if if oil goes from 70 to 80 tonight, then you shouldn't raise interest rates. But Mm -hmm. the ECB is even stranger definition. So we could do a whole, we could do a whole hour on that. And I don't want to get into anything political, but you did touch on federal government spending since the raising of the debt ceiling. 
is there, we've been having this conversation certainly as long as I've been alive that, you know, will the dollar ever be taken to task for the actions of the U.S. government? Do you think that's ever going to happen or no? Yeah, it's not a political question, right? It's a, it's a math question. It's a, it's a market structure. It's become politicized, but yeah, yes, well, everything does. And so I have no, <laughs> I, I have no comment on who's, you know, better or worse for the dollar or who's doing a good <laughs> or bad job. I'm just watching, right? So the amount of debt out there is, is very, is very large. By the way, so is Japan's. Uh-huh. Um, and Japan, Japan is what, 300 and something percent of their GDP. They're the big leader in the clubhouse in debt and their yields are the lowest. So mm-hmm. let's be careful with what conclusions we draw. The dollar uh-huh. question, I think, is a market structure question. The world transacts in dollars because it's stable and because it's easy. And because the US is such a big consumer of stuff, the dollars are out there in the world. The question I'd ask back is what's going to take over and when? So again, we could throw out a whole conversation on crypto. Right. Is that a thing that we could use? Well, it seems not ready yet, but sure, it's a conversation. You could throw out conversations on China and their currency. You could throw out the euro, which I think is its own issue. So mm-hmm. my short answer to your question is no time soon. Right. I think Got the it. dollar goes up and down. It is the world's reserve currency. It is very difficult to unseat. Though I would suggest we could take better care of it as a country. I like it's that. Not, it's not, it's not. We have no divine right to be in the world's reserve currency. That's and I right. think people have done some things to at least when we shouldn't even want people to ask the question. And we've done yeah. very little to dissuade people from asking it. So yes, it's inevitable to be a currency after the dollar. I don't know that it's something we worry about day to day in our investments. Your emerging market portfolios, do you do anything to hedge the cross-currency risk kind of inherit in those? Or is that just part and parcel of the gig? No, it's a great question. Um, so part of the research we do is thinking about where interest rates are going and where those currency differentials are going. Um, so we do a couple things in our emerging market portfolios. We tend to take away the U.S. duration risk. So mm-hmm. one of your questions is, how do you get non-U.S. duration risk? Well, not everybody does it this way, but the Eaton Vance family of funds, we do tend to hedge out our U.S. duration risk, not as a comment on anything, but just as an investment policy. Yes. And yes, depending on the risk we're taking, we may like the interest rate risk and not the currency risk. We might like both, but you're not going to take 100% currency risk in, in a, an emerging market. So we'll take some semblance of the in-between, somewhere between no currency risk if we just like the interest rates. But more often than not, we're actually going to take some direct exposure to the country and the currency and then hedge out the part that we don't. Don't want. Most U.S. investors, if I think about my portfolio, I imagine if I looked at yours and, and listeners, U.S. Oh, investors don't look at my portfolio. <laughs> are very U.S.-centric. U.S. Yeah. investors love U.S. stuff. And by the way, what a great time to have had that theory, right? Mm-hmm. If you go look at the sure, last 20 yeah. years, emerging markets, barring a couple, and I think we're one, mm-hmm. emerging investor. markets have not been great. No. U.S. U.S., the big seven, are multinational corporations, not really U.S. companies. And with U.S. markets have crushed other markets mm-hmm. in equity space. So it's fixed income true, it's equity true. Probably not the story for the next 20 years. So like mm-hmm. having a little bit of exposure not in the US. Again, it's hard. You don't want to wake up and start buying random stuff out in different currencies. You probably need right. to, to get some help. But yeah, the story of the next 20 years is probably the dollar not being quite as important and dominant as it was. But what a great time for US investors. Our European investors tend to not want to own only European assets. They tend to look mm-hmm. more in the US and Asia. Asian investors for the last... 30 years have, because the yields have been so low, have been looking outside of, of Asia um, yeah. as well as inside. So anyway, the U.S. is probably like the last bastion of like most of our portfolios are U.S. based uh-huh. um, and dollar based. And so it's worth thinking about, again, not being 100 percent in some other currency, but being you know 10 percent in a basket of stuff that, that's not U.S. based. It's not something that U.S. investors, myself included, to do well. It's hard. It's scary. We haven't really even touched on FX trading at all in our podcast, which is something that I think we're going to want to get into. 
But it's just interesting to think about why an asset manager might be in and out of the FX markets, not necessarily expressing an outright view on currency relationships, but rather hedging the currency risk of their yeah, fixed income portfolio. Listen, uh, currencies are one of those places that once you think you get a good handle on duration, once you get a good handle on kind of what moves US markets, yeah, what currencies it's hard. It's, 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 well, the place it's so macro. It's, it's and then so, it's, but then yeah. there's all of this other stuff that you have to understand that makes it, you know, the, and, and I mean, and this is the players. stupidest thing, but it's like the exchange rate. It's like, well, which one is on top? Yes, the order of the pairs. Yeah. No, and listen, the nicknames. If, if, if I'm an investor with a day job, even if my day job is investing, I, I'm going to make a decision of, I want to be 100% US dollars, which, as I say, has been brilliant until like mm. the last couple of months. Okay, it's probably the wrong number. So am I 90? Am I 80? Right. And then who do I trust to do the allocation for me? And where would I put it? Yeah. I, listen, I don't know too many people who are brave enough to start speculating on their own in, in terms Dude, of- Dude, we in- get messages on all day long from people who are day trading FX. And I'm like, more power to you. <laughs> listen, it's volatile. So I guess if you're, if you're watching the moves, but gosh, the risk inherent in there and the way it moves is very hard to understand, even for you know, professional investors. And so we tend to think about it much more, you know, long-term trends is the value mm-hmm. of dollar and different blocks. Currencies in Southeast Asia tend to be correlated. Currencies in Latin America tend to have correlations, not always, because then you get idiosyncratic events that obviously, or, or individual countries that are outliers. But um, yeah, it's uh, that could, that certainly you could cover that for hours and hours and hours with people much, much more well-versed in FX than I am, but it's fascinating. So we've talked a lot about the impact of different crises on trading psychology over the past 20, 30 years. How do you look at the portfolios within MSIM and hedge them against extreme outcomes? Yeah. So listen, that's why we break up into teams. So it's funny, my job now is kind of oversee the teams and make sure they're doing what you say. So each team has their own style. And listen, the truth is every style doesn't work in every market. I always remind our teams, be clear about what markets you're best at. Very few people make money in every single market. Now, if you're a macro hedge fund, if you're levered, right, there are certainly businesses where you need to change or take down risk on the fly. As longer term investors, we don't really... We don't run that same risk, right? We're not a trading desk where we're levered. We're not a hedge fund where we're levered. So I think the question that I ask all the teams is make sure you're clear on your investment thesis. And then when that thesis is wrong, make sure you take your risk down, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we very rarely go back to zero. We try not to be indexed. We don't own all cash. Uh Um, So the idea isn't like sit around and worry about 08 and buy tail risk hedges. There are funds that do that. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive. It works very, very rarely. Hedging for the tail is something we try not to do. We are long-term research-oriented investors. If the major facts change, we should redo our research. If the markets overreact, we should actually use our research to take more risk mm-hmm. and to buy. And yes, every hopefully it's, it doesn't seem like 100 years. It seems like it's every 10 to 15. You get a, a 2008 or some type of real crisis. Then it's hard. Then people throw out research. Go back and look in 2008 at all the bonds that traded well below par. Yeah. So many of them came back to be fine. There was but recovery. It, People was, forget well, that yeah. there's recovery in yeah. bonds. Yeah. 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 There was more than recovery, right? I mean, even the, some of the worst of the worst sectors, the AAA bonds, ended up being fine. But mm-hmm. sometimes it's about liquidity. So the other piece our investors mm-hmm. have to worry about, right, is are investors going to want their money back? And if right. they are, then you actually have to start selling things that you like because yeah. that's what we own. Mm-hmm. And that's you get into this crisis. So like, we'll think about liquidity. We'll think about kind of what the flows are going to be. And then we'll think about opportunity, right? Our job is not to panic. It's to make sure we're doing this correctly. And my job is to look over this whole thing and say, the teams get it or every once in a while. And I'm happy. I've been here five years. 
so I haven't seen this, but every once in a while, a team will kind of get lost in their own thesis, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's wrong. It's not working. They're fighting it. It's emotional. And then you have to step in and kind of be a you know, team psychiatrist and say, <laughs> all right, guys, like everyone take a step back, right? Like, take <laughs> down. And by the way, we have an independent risk team that does that. I have a whole support system of folks that can help me with that. And, and that's why, again, those PMs, how do people get to be the quarterback? Well, they show that they have a level head and don't get emotional about things. Not that all the researchers do, but it's a unique skill because again, we're wrong all the time in this job and uh, you have to know when it's, you know, we'll say early, which is code for wrong, but hopefully not permanently wrong. (laughs) Um, and, And you have to know when it's early or when it's wrong and then be willing to take the risk off when it's not. It's a bit of art and a bit of science. Brian, I feel like the the surprise title for this podcast is going to be like, meet the world's most relaxed Bond guy. Like you are, it's so funny. I always tell Kristen, I'm like, if it's doom and gloom, it's Bonds. But you are- uh... I was once called the world's least pessimistic Bond manager. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's as good as we get. Well, listen, when you only get par back and you can sometimes get 30 back, people get get pessimistic, but it's the life I've chosen. So I tried to- uh, I try to keep it positive. So you say the life you've chosen. You talked about your entry path directly onto the buy side. For our listeners who are looking for a job in the financial services industry, what is the path for them if they want to get into a place like MSIM? Are you only hiring people who have experience either on the buy side or sell side? Are you hiring directly out of these undergraduate institutions? Walk us through what the path is to break into MSIM. And obviously it depends on where you're going in MSIM, right? If you're going to a research role, portfolio management role, back office role, right? All these things are different. But Yeah, they're all different. And I'll speak for fixed income because listen, when you do, as you guys know, when you get into private equity, there are some places where MBAs are kind of one of the, you know, the things that they want you to do, or they want you to come in for a year or two, but like mm-hmm. investment banking. Fixed income is different, as we've been hinting at around, I think, this entire English um, major and history uh, major too. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people don't wake up and say, hey, I want to be a fixed income asset manager, right? It just isn't a thing, right? Yeah, they should, obviously. Listen, I didn't. Like, I don't expect people to don't really expect people to. Um, because first of all, you're not really taught it, right? If, if I interview someone from pick your favorite undergrad program, business or not, by the way, maybe you get one fixed income question out of four or five on your finance 101 test, but it's probably forgotten about. So unless you have a direct friend or parent or you had an internship, people just don't know it. So we in Emson Fixed Income, we hire out of school out of undergrad, we hire people with all kinds of backgrounds. And yeah, it's probably a little bit my bias because I didn't have the background. Um, But it's also, if I hired everyone with a finance background, half of them want to go onto investment banking or equities or whatever. There are lots of people with lots of different skill sets that actually end up liking it. So we try to hire diverse backgrounds, diverse schools. And yeah, there's really not a prerequisite. I mean, I do like finding folks that can program. It sounds like a personal bias. Right, because you learn to program in 10 days. But I think the thing is, how do you add value right away? Like automating things and like, let's put the whole AI thing aside a little bit. It's not new, but I think fixed income, it's more complicated. It's a little bit further behind. So people who can program get a little bit of an extra look because it's just a helpful skill. And people say AI is going to change that. We'll see. And yeah, we get our share of finance majors and econ majors and things you'd expect. But we have history, a lot of math, a lot of math majors. Again, we're going to teach you the fixed income parts. And so we find people, listen, if you like learning complex markets, if you want to be part of a market that changes every day, if someone really immerses you in it, 
It's how you apply it and then how you grow it. By the way, like, you know, it's like, okay, I understand duration. I understand investment grade credit. Can I get to high yield? Can I get to FX? Can I get to, you know, Fed? Can I understand the ECB? So you, I always say you, you can build as many concentric rings in, in, in mm-hmm. investing as you want, which is, I think, what attracts people to it yeah. is that you can be yeah. an expert in this and know nothing about this, or you can, I'm more of a jack of all trades where I try to understand just a little bit about, about everything, but it's, uh, it's fascinating. I wasn't aware that you guys had such an apprenticeship-based model because that's what's so attractive to a lot of people who are young and just getting started about the sell side is everything is an apprenticeship-based model. And the impression certainly that I had working on the sell side was, well, if you want to get to the buy side, you already need to have the whole thing mastered. Those opportunities aren't as available for you to get up the curve. Yeah. Uh, listen, I, I, I like to mimic things that work. So listen, I love the sell side sales and trading uh, apprenticeship model, as you say. I was the beneficiary of what ended up being the very beginnings of the BlackRock apprenticeship model, right? There's, I am the best example. Maybe not the best. I'm sure there are a handful of other people like me, right? There are a number of us out there from that training program where the blood, sweat, and tears of a few individuals got us to a point where we knew enough. And so we try to do the same thing, right? We try to run an internship program where we teach, use that as a recruiting platform to keep the best, yeah. hire mm-hmm. analysts, teach them. And we also, listen, I have no idea when I meet you if you're going to be good at macro or high yield investing or bank loan research. So we try to give you some exposure to different things as opposed to just like guessing. And then we figure it out from there. So I do like the apprenticeship model. I think fixed income is one of those places where you're not going to come out of high school or college or even an MBA program being like, boom, I'm a, I'm a fixed income portfolio manager, nor would many people want to be. But we can teach you along the way. Anything else you want to share? Any final words of wisdom, Brian? Like anything you wish words you'd known before starting wisdom. your career or you want to share? I always tell people it's a big industry, right? There's lots of places you can start. There's lots of things you can try. I think if you're just getting started, my advice would be go somewhere you like the people. And listen, for all those investors out there that love equities and trade them around and don't know fixed income at all, I would argue, um, take a look at some of the things going on. There's some great coupons. Some of your money can be boring and actually earn money while you sleep, which is nice. It's the first time we can say this in a very long time. I think we'll probably get a little better in some places, but again, in things like high yield and loans and um, and NEM, like, yeah, there's, there's some great opportunity. And munis, by the way, depends on the day you look for but there's some if you're if you're a taxpayer which most of us are there's some ways you can get some income and we'll worry less about it so i don't know it's an interesting world i know it's not most of your listeners uh, number one focus maybe after today know. though yeah most yeah. people don't know i remember i went to an info session when i was going into morgan stanley and there was someone for fixed income i'm like what is fixed income i didn't know and yeah. they explained it to me and i was like oh that seems cool i also talked to jen and jen was always my like guru person so i ended up going right, into well. fixed income because <laughs> If anyone can help us get people interested, should be you. <laughs> so thank you so much for having me. Um, and uh, yeah, if people have questions, um, we're easy to find. And uh, Are you a LinkedIn um, person if people want LinkedIn. to find you? Okay, yeah. yeah so people can find LinKedIn. you on LinkedIn people at Brian Weinstein. Um, Does MSIM have like, yeah, a social MSIM media has account? roles and advanced funds has, uh, has social media. Um, so yeah, we're, we're out there. And if we can We'll help. put all those links and, in the show notes and for everyone. Last, I guess last question. If someone is listening to this and they're like, I really want to go work for MSIM, it sounds like you guys do recruiting. Is yeah. it the sort of standard, similar recruiting cycle as if someone were to go to I banking? Mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, so yeah. Is it the similar kind of process yes. or what is the, if someone yeah, wants to get the process, job? Run- Yep. Similar process runs parallel if you're in a university. If you're not at a place where we recruit, we always take resumes. We always have job listings on online. I love that. Uh, yes. We look just like a smaller version of the big sales and trading rotations. And we take resumes from all over and we're constantly recruiting and looking and trying to get 
smarter and better and different. So yeah, if people want to find us with resumes, that is cool too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brian. We really appreciate you. Thank you guys so much. Um, when we're luck. in New York, we have to get together. Yes, it's been a bit too long. Um, yeah. Cool. A decade too Hopefully long. see you guys in person. Bye, friends. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 